0: Right, welcome to our still new podcast called Questions You Ask. Now, if that name doesn't sound familiar, well, let me tell you about that a little bit, because we used to call it DBCY, and then someone actually uh, rescued me from that that terrible naming error. And so our crack technical team decided, hey, it would be better called this, and I looked at it and it's like, yep, that is a much better name. So uh, uh, good job there, Jeremy and Jonathan. I uh, would like to welcome to our new recording. Uh, welcome you to our new recording studio. Uh, they built this pretty much just for us. It's huge. I mean, they can have receptions and stuff in here. Uh, and you can have would you say, uh, John, you can have this for the low low price
1: of what? Six hundred
0: thousand, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, you too can have your own podcast studio for six hundred thousand dollars. So, I'd like to welcome to this new this new space. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Executive Pastor Alan Tolliver and uh, John Hume. Now, before I jump in too much, I want to say when I when I threw out this idea for this topic. Uh, I sent an email. I said, who wants to speak to this? I did have one person on this panel say, and I quote, that's my bag, baby. And so it's like, well, let's definitely do I wasn't going to call him out. (laughs) So, but but now we know. So uh, we're expecting a lot from you now, Alan, because we know that that's (laughs) your bag. And so uh, this past, Sunday, our pastor, Alan Jackson, uh, started a... Well, he has a sermon series on questions Jesus asked. And the question this week was... What do scriptures say? And I thought that would be a perfect lead-in into this question that we're going to talk about today. Why trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And so I asked these two to uh, join me as we have this discussion. And I think before we get too far along, I mean, we've got to actually make some definitions. And the first question I'd ask, um, what is
1: the Bible? John, Alan, when we talk about the Bible, what's the Bible? I think the Bible um, exists to impart God's wisdom to us. I mean, there's several reasons why the Bible exists, but it it exists to impart God's wisdom to us. It's it's to show us um, why we need Christ, how we can come to know God and know his will in our life. It's It's a gift to us. It's a one book, it's two testaments or covenants, it's 66 different individual books in that one book that all points us to our need for why we need Christ in our life, who God is, why we need a savior and how we can live um, how God wants us to and how Jesus wants us to.
0: Right. I, I love the idea that the Bible pretty much tells an overarching redemptive story. All right. This is from the in the beginning until now. This is a record of how God has been working to restore His people to Himself. Not just His people, but all of His creation, because all of creation has fallen because of that one sinful act way back in the beginning. Uh, and this Bible is a record. Of that. And as you say, I mean, I forget how many authors, uh, a lot of authors, 40, maybe 60, I forget how many, uh, over a period of thousands of years, uh, one unifying story carried throughout. Uh, Question I have then is how did we get our Bible? Can you speak to that?
2: How much time do we have?
0: We oh, that's actually a good point because we're actually going to probably have to break this thing up into two parts uh, because we have a lot to talk about, and it's going to, and even what we're talking about isn't going to scratch the surface. It, it is a lot of material to cover. The people have been writing about this for thousands of years, uh, and I'll, we're not going to wrap this thing up in thirty minutes. Uh, and it's also going to lead into a lot of other conversations. One of the things I want to get into is contradictions. Are, are there contradictions in the Bible? Uh, people, skeptics will say that there are, and that's what prevents them from taking a step of faith. I want to have a whole episode dedicated just to that at some future point.
1: So to answer your question, how much time do we have? Eh, I don't know. Give it a couple of minutes. I, 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 before Alan gets into the, uh, like, how we got it, I, I, I meant to say at the beginning, the Bible is written in a in a way that everybody can understand it, right? It, it doesn't matter what language we read, where we're from, maybe, right. or even our education level, it, God's word speaks to us in so many ways that it's written in a way that anybody can read it and understand it. So, as we talk about like technical things and different things about the Bible, I, it's always important for me to remember that we can all understand and understand and recognize what God's word tells us. Right. All right, Alan, give it to us. Um, gosh, it's it's a big, big question. Let me
2: start by offering a thought and and get you to respond to it a little bit. I would suggest that the Bible is not a thing, but a collection of different things. Yes. Particularly when we use the uh, idea of genre. So when we look at Genesis 1 to 11, those are what I call our origin stories. Beginning with what God did in the beginning, God created. Genesis 2, God breathed the breath of life, right? And then we begin to see some of the very earliest stories where God is revealing himself um, to humanity. And then and then right about Genesis 12, we get to this um, this moment where God calls this unknown character, um, Abram, out of the land of the Chaldeans, the land where he was living, to show him a new land. God said, I'm going to make a covenant. Um, with you and through you that will bless all people for all time," sort of a paraphrase. But Abram hears God's voice and doesn't know God, but follows God's voice anyway with his father, Terah, his wife, Sarai. And, and they travel over a thousand miles up the Euphrates River across some mountains and, and down the Jordan River into this, this land that God says, one day your people will be too numerous to count. And then through you, I will redeem humanity. Again, I'm paraphrasing a much longer text. And along with that, we have stories of redemption. And then as you look a little further, we have poetry, we have history, we have law. And all of these things combine to tell God's story and reveal God's plan for us.
0: So you'd mentioned earlier uh, in your your thing is a collection of books. And I think that actually lends to a a conversation for another day also talking about using the Bible to prove the Bible and how to do that right and how to do that uh, uh, poorly. But one of the things that's in the Bible's favor is that it's not just one book. We have a collection of books written over a long period of time by a lot of different authors that – that point to one redemptive story and they all support each other and they build on top of each other. Uh, A lot of that came along through just... spoken history that was eventually wrote, uh, written down. That's not a right word there, uh, written down. Uh, and we're going to see later that, that Paul even speaks to this in 2 Timothy, and I'm sure we're all going to speak to this at some point, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So even all along, God is preserving the these words that were eventually written down just because he can have a unifying story that's passed down to the ages that ends up in our hands today.
1: Yep. It's his, it's his very breath, right? God, God spoke through people to write these words down. So as we read this, these these are actually God's word written to us, right? I and the saying, question I'm really
0: going to ask support. later on is: All right, do we think God actually dictated these words? I'm not ready to hit there hit that yet, uh, but I do. Like a lot of translations say, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other places it says God breathed. Uh, the The word is not so much inspiration; it's better translated expiration, because it is breathed out by God. Now, how did He go about doing that? How did He use the personalities of the people to whom He's breathing uh, these words to? And so, and it's fascinating because it's like God uses people. I guess we're going to talk about this now. Uh, So, God uses. Uh, people and their personalities to get his words and message across, and he's always been in that business. Uh, y'all got anything to say to that?
1: Just thinking of Alan's point of where, how the Bible was put together, right? Just again, that beautiful phrase he used, that collection of, I don't know if you said many different things, but a collection of things that, that don't contradict each other, right? That all work together to form a beautiful story that shows us the, the love that God has for us. And and as we think about that, just how amazing it is that different authors over many, many years, I mean, thousands of years put right. this together and they don't contradict themselves. God's Word, God cannot contradict Himself, so He breathed these words out. He cannot contradict Himself. The words of the Bible as we see it put together will never contradict itself. So, uh,
0: One of the things I want to uh, hit on is just how the Scriptures have been preserved throughout the years. How right. I mean, just, what, a month ago, I'm, I'm in Israel. I find myself in Israel looking at Dead Sea Scrolls. and I'm like, wow, because I, I never one thought I'd ever get that opportunity to do that. But there they are. And what those Dead Sea Scrolls represent is a bridge of a thousand years where you can see that the most recent text we had up until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found uh, all right, we, we we believe that this is what it said, but then we're able to go back in time a thousand years and say, hey, wait a minute, they still say the same thing. They still say the same thing. Because yeah. they've been preserved and uh, there's got to be something supernatural to it because we've all played that dumb game where we sit in a room and we say something and we repeat it to the next person and whisper it to the next person, the next person. The idea is, you know, and every time you got that one kid in the middle or something who changes it on purpose and then other people who have no idea what the God said to begin with. So by the time you get to the end, uh, it's not even close to what it said. You would expect that if there wasn't supernatural uh, preservation going on here, that's exactly what would happen. But we don't see that happening. And the dead. And the thing is, they still say there's stuff buried out there that they haven't found yet. Uh, and it's just like, what's the next revelation that God is going to have for us to show that, you yeah, what we have now is, not different from what we had back then. Mm. Yep. So uh, let's talk about canon a little bit, because I remember when I was in uh, seminary, well, even in college, talking about in in, uh, like Old Testament, New Testament class, this word canon came along, and it's like I had one thing in mind, and it shot like balls at other people, and uh, bad Hmm. things happened. And so when they start talking about the, the canon of Scripture, it's like, what is that? So let's talk about that a little bit. For those out there who might not know, what is the canon? What are we talking about? Okay, um, it actually comes from two
2: root words. One is the Greek word kanon, which means measuring stick. And there's a parallel word in Hebrew, kana, which also means reed or stick. And it literally means this collection of scripture that has been measured and weighed by a community and found to be truthful and accurate. And we've adopted that word to call uh, our collection of Scripture the canon of Scripture. That is something that has been weighed and measured and evaluated and and validated um, by a community of faith to say this is going to be
0: um, our Scripture. Right. And there were certain standards that a book or a letter or any kind of writing had to be measured against, Uh, and I remember some of those like being, uh, is there any apostolic uh, credence to it. Was it written right. by an apostle? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it written during the time of the apostles? Uh, did the church accept these teachings, uh, you know, were they kind of widespread? Now, somehow, uh, we have some books in the Bible that didn't necessarily meet that last qualification, because I think Revelation, I mean, they hung on, am I right about that? Am I remembering yep. right? They were like, yeah, it's kind of weird. We don't know about that one, uh, so and we actually have a pastor is leading a sermon series on that. I think in what September? September, so we're going to be talking about Revelation. So here we are, uh, so that's that's going to be interesting uh but i remember you remember that when the da vinci code movie came out in the books terrible heresy I, it <laughs> was because i mean they're in the movie and i remember taking my youth group to see it for whatever reason i don't know i feel bad about that i really do so but teaching, and i had
1: teaching point it
0: was actually it turned out to be it turned yeah. out to be a really yeah. good teaching opportunity uh because i had youth parents going like Yep, that's what I always thought. I knew that he probably was married and had kids. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that wasn't the point. Right. He didn't come to get married. He came to seek and to save the lost. Right. That's in that's in the book. It's, it's it's right there. Uh that you have this guy who's using what was it, Gospel of Thomas? Yeah, Am I remembering that? That's right. Classic Gnosticism. Yeah. And yeah. so and, and so that's one of the things. And so why was that book not added to the canon of scripture? It didn't meet any of these qualifications. It was it was not. Okay, so it wasn't written during the time of
2: the apostles. It was written two or three hundred years later. Right. It um, aligned with the Gnostic thinking that there was secret knowledge and secret um, associations that would lead to deeper understanding. That's a very Gnostic
0: idea. Mm that there which was a heresy going on even even Paul oh, yeah. I think the book of Galatians if i remember right was just a uh, maybe even 1st John yeah. is just like against gnosticism because that was creeping into the church right keep going i'm sorry no it was it was a cultural phenomenon that was corrupting church teaching and i mean there's nothing
2: new under the sun we've always got uh, some new heresy that's trying to sneak into the church and corrupt uh the gospel and so um the early church fathers had to had to Take those folks that were advancing those ideas and set them outside the fellowship. You, know, you, you can't be a part of us if you're teaching this. And th- that's how things were ruled either in or out of the canon of Scripture, um, which was, I guess, officially closed like in 360, 370
1: A.D. So we, we, we think maybe, Alan, is it fair to say that if an if a apostle wrote it or accepted it, um, it was kind of good? Uh, like Hebrews, maybe a widespread use in the early church. Like so many in the early church accepted it as as Scripture, as part of what we would call the canon. And in the Old Testament then, was it kind of written with the understanding, or even in the New Testament times, that this was the Word of God given to people? So it was kind of accepted. Here's the Old Testament writings that... This was God's Word to us.
2: I don't know that the ancient Jewish people would have used that language. I think that's a newer, and perhaps even a New Testament construction, um, because they never saw the body of Scripture as one thing. Mm. So, for example, uh, Torah, uh, that's the first five books. That's the law. And any Hebrew person, if you were to say, what is the law? They'd say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, That's... that is Torah. But then in addition to Torah, you have what's called um, the Ketuvim and then the Nevim. Um, one of those is uh, the prophets, and, and and then the other is what's called the writings or the, the, the wisdom writings. And so those would be like the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. These are these are wisdom writings. Uh, and then you've also got the, the writing of the prophets, both the majors and the minors. Right. So if Isaiah said it, well, that's, you know, that's, that's part of Isaiah's collection, Jeremiah's collection, Ezekiel's. I call those the big 3, right? right? Daniel, if you want to add Daniel, that's they call them the big 4. Right, right. And then you've got some of the other prophets. Um and so the Jewish communities, even if you look at their collection of scriptures today, they don't organize their scripture the same way that we do. And they really do separate um, these different things into the the Torah, the Nevim and the Ketuvim.
1: It's a point that I know, like, cognitively I understand it, but then I just think of the Bible being like my book here, right? It's all here. It's not a series of scrolls. Like we read in the New Testament when Jesus came and pulled out the scroll and read it. You know, he wasn't just flipping through his Bible or even now on our phone, just selecting a, a chapter and verse, but he was actually pulling out a scroll. So when I think of all of it one, I think of this. You think of the whole collection. Yeah, as one thing, I, I I forget. Like again, cognitively I under I know that, but I I forget the fact that it wasn't they didn't view it as I view it.
2: No, in fact, um, Luke chapter four, Jesus enters the synagogue in his hometown, sits down. I mentioned this in a previous sermon, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus opens to the correct place. But if you think about a scroll with that's filled with handwriting. You know, like you can't write smaller than about twelve or fourteen point font, right? Okay. So, and you and you have to do single side with a scroll because otherwise you won't be able to get to the the back side okay. of the paper. So, if you think about a single sided Bible, or even a single sided Old Testament written in fourteen point font on scrolls, it would fill the back of a truck. Right. You know, and and I would say that not every synagogue had the entire collection. The number of places that had the entire collection, a full complete copy of the Old Testament, was very rare. You know that every single writing was in one place. Um, the temple in Jerusalem for sure, but but not
0: a lot of other synagogues had the whole thing. Well, I remember like the the first time I ever, uh, you know, our Bibles has you know, First Kings, Second Kings, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and the reason there was a first and second because you run out of. Scroll space, all right. (laughs) So it's like let's move on to the second scroll, Uh, and so it's a continuation of the first. And I just found that to be kind of uh, uh, fascinating. And the the picture you just painted was 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 kind of neat, especially what going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. um, One of the things that they found in its entirety was the scrolls of Isaiah, Mm -hmm. and they actually found multiple full copies of that. Uh, And it was kind of neat because in the middle of the chamber. They actually had that, a copy of the whole thing wrapped around. And so, I mean, it's like there was a day I could have read parts of it. That was many Hebrew years ago, uh, but I couldn't read any of it then. I'm not even sure if I could read it when I had Hebrew because it was just written so differently. But it was just amazing to sit there and know we've got that. We've got that. Our record goes back uh, that far. And that's a lot more than a lot of other historical documents can say. Because you look at uh, a lot of the skeptics of the Bible and say, ah, oh, well, I mean, you, you, you can't really uh, trust that because we don't have the original manuscripts. Well, you look at almost any historical document, we don't have the original manuscripts. Uh, I mean, we have recent ones. You can go to the Washington, D.C. and see our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, but you can't go back and find original copies of uh, the biography of Julius Caesar and all that. And there's less copies of that than there are uh, of the manuscripts we have. Matter of fact, I think I remember, and I'm told I can't even cite a source on this, but if we were to take all of the manuscripts that we have and stack them on top of each other, I mean, it would be higher than the Empire States Building. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how many records we have. And you compare that to some of these ancient writings where, I mean, there's just, I mean, it, you could stack them on this table and still be able to see over them. Yep. Uh, and it's
1: just fascinating. Go ahead, John. We're teaching, uh, teaching this summer a class on a visual guide to the Bible. and one of the, That's where I got that from. One of the yeah. statistics, uh, Tim Child is the author of that. So this is not mine. It's his. Um, I just want to quote what he says here. While the manuscript evidence for the Old Testament is encouraging, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is unsurpassed by any other ancient book. True. There are more than 5,700 Greek manuscripts containing either parts or all of the New Testament text. So, 5,700 manuscripts containing parts or all of the New Testament. We compare that to Homer's Iliad, there's only 1,757 manuscripts in existence. Or if we compare it to Beowulf, I'm sure all of you, like me, had to read Beowulf uh, sometime in high school. Brendel. There's only, yeah, uh, there's only one manuscript of Beowulf. And we take the Iliad and the Odyssey as these are true. Nobody's going to argue the fact that they were written or that they are the exact words that people read, but there are so many more copies of the New Testament. It's unsurpassed compared to those. And and when we look and examine how, when you were in, uh, at the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, um, as they wrote that right from right to left right and they would make sure that each line had the same number of characters and they ended the same place and if it wasn't exact then they would get rid of that so every copy we can have confidence and trust the fact that these are actually the, the very words uh, that were written and the very words of God so and one of the things
0: i want to get into and it's we probably don't have time to do it today is all right so we come to the point where we can trust the manuscripts and have the writings that we have we still got to decide for ourselves how can we trust the content mm-hmm. all right so when uh, jesus comes along and says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me how can we believe that and I, that that is certainly a conversation we're going to have for another time because there are groups out there. It, there was a time when 1700s, I mean, the skeptics started to rise up to say, ah, this whole Jesus thing, it's just mythology. Yeah. And so, and, but all of a sudden they'll say that there's things in the Bible that clearly, I mean, there was no such person as David. There was no such person as Pilate. Um, but then all of a sudden it seems like every year something else happens to show, oh, by the way, Yeah, yeah, there is. See, here it is. I think it was in the uh, early 1900s. All of a sudden, they're starting to find manuscripts and stuff uh, by a king who said, yep, I was going after, I, I beat David. In battle, and they're like, "Oh, well, maybe there was a guy." Uh, When we were in Israel again, we got to see this stone. They, for the longest, they said, "There's no, there was no Pilate. There was no character in history named Pilate." And all of a sudden, you see this stone that says, "Pilate, Prefect of Judea," and it was like, "Okay, so." he was real. And I right. think they discovered that in the 1960s. Damn. And it seems like the, the the further away we get from the time of the Bible, the more stuff we find that supports, hey, all this stuff has a historical background. All right. That doesn't necessarily prove the claims of the Bible. And that's another conversation. Uh, but they at least give credence to them and say, look, all right, so this Th- this work here was written in a historical background, and that and they, people look at the Book of Luke, and and that was his prime uh, motivation anyway to create. I think he actually says it in his opening words to create an orderly uh, record of the works of Jesus, and so it's it, it, from there. Once we establish the fact that this stuff is grounded in history. Then we can look at the stuff it actually says and see, all right, so how can we know the words are true? And I think that's what we probably, this is a good place to just go ahead and uh, segue out and say, all right, let's talk about this in our next episode. Uh, before we close out then, do you have anything else that you would like to add to this?
1: We probably have hundreds of things we'd, we'd like. Yeah, to add. absolutely. I, I, briefly, I would just say, uh, I want to say two things. I'll try to say them briefly. In the uh, mid-1980s, Time Magazine had an article. It was labeled, Score One for the Bible. And they had just begun excavating part of Jericho. And what they discovered was weapons leaning against the wall, um, big vats and baskets full of grain. And they, they kind of surmised from that that what they thought might have been a long siege that just knocked these walls of Jericho down, something happened quickly that caused the walls to fall with all the weapons being stored, all the grain being there. It wasn't a long battle that over a period of time, somebody knocked down the walls over time. So the the article was called score one for the Bible. So as they looked at it, what the Bible in time magazine was saying, what the Bible has recorded looks like according to this archeology span actually happened. And for me, that, that is an indication as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, what worldview do we come from in talking about the Bible? And this is something that we'll get in. But if I come from a theistic, a belief that there's God, a monotheistic, belief that there's one God, as I come from that worldview and read it, then nothing should surprise me about what I see here because it's, it's God-breathed, right? The, the verse we keep, we keep running uh, into it and we talk about all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." That God's Word is just, it's true, it's His, and as we continue to talk about it, I would encourage you, if, if you don't read it, if, if you've never sat down and this engaged in what God's Word says, to come to it with an open heart open eyes, right? An open mind just to read what God's word says and let it challenge you. I believe the Bible, I didn't say at the beginning, but is a map and is a mirror for us, it's a map that shows us the direction we need to go. God is going to show us what we need to do. And it's a mirror that as we read it, I look at it and think, oh my goodness, I, I'm not doing what the Bible tells me to do. So I have a couple of options. I can disobey God's word and not do it. Or I can let it be a mirror and show me how I'm really living and then let that change my life. might not be easy, but it's always going to be right. So, as we just read God's Word and study His Word, let's just let it impact it in a positive way and change our lives. All right, Alan, anything?
2: If God didn't have a hand in directing the work of writing, protecting, preserving, and transmitting, We wouldn't have what we have today. The fact that the Bible has survived wars, rises and falls uh, of empires, um, uh, transmission across cultures and across languages and across great spans of time, that can only be the work of the Spirit, that we have the text that we have today, mm-hmm. that, that it shouldn't have survived, and yet it did in so many copies that all agree with each other. That at each turn, Scripture has been proven true, trustworthy, consistent, accurate, and, and no other document has that kind of staying power. Um, and, and I think that only because It's divine preservation and transmission that we have been given what we've been given. Uh, Genesis 1 to 11 is ancient beyond the telling or dating, Mm. and yet we have the origin stories and then we've got the story of God's revelation through Abraham and and the the people of Israel uh, all the way down to the Messiah, and that at each turn Scripture, where it has been protected and buried or left in the desert or placed in a jar in Qumran um, or tucked into an ancient library somewhere, and we find these copies and they all still line up, it's all still correct, that can only be divine providence that we have the text, we have it. So I, I think for that reason, we can trust it. We can believe it. We can know it to be reliable um, and accurate and faithful. Mm, that's good.
1: John, I saw
0: you flipping over there. You got
1: something to add? And... No, I just, I Alan keeps going to Genesis 11 and, and I always find it remarkable, that Tower of Babel at the end of mm. Genesis 11, right? That man's trying to build a structure to get to God, right? And then next chapter, Here's Abraham. I'm going to use you, right? Um, your people are going to be great. It's just this, this, not contradiction, but just the difference between eleven. We're going to build this tower and try to get to God, and then, but God leading through Abram is just really remarkable. Yeah. I just I wanted to go back to that's why I flipped to it. So. All right. Well, appreciate Alan, John, joining
0: us. Uh, looking forward to uh, part two. We'll be recording that very soon. And uh, appreciate you all online who are watching us uh, on our new questions you ask podcast series. Uh, so looking forward to being with you again. I'm Gary McIntyre. Thanks for joining us.